Welcome back to Chaos. In the last lecture, we saw how the meteorologist Edwin Rentz happened upon the butterfly effect serendipitously in his simulations of artificial weather. The butterfly effect has now moved beyond science and entered popular consciousness, but some aspects of it are commonly misunderstood. And so in this lecture, I think it's worth pausing from our hardcore science discussion to, to discuss the philosophical significance of the butterfly effect to try to clarify what it really means and what it doesn't mean. Probably the right place to start is by asking, where does the term come from? It's a felicitous phrase. It, it sticks in the mind. Who created it? You might be surprised to, to learn that we don't really know. It seems obvious that it must be Lorenz, and there's good evidence for that, but Lorenz himself is not sure. In his own writings, he says he's not quite sure where the term came from. Most likely, though, it derives from the title of a 1972 lecture that he gave at a big meeting called the Meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. The lecture was titled, Predictability, colon, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? So that would seem to be the source. But Lorenz did not actually write that title. He originally used a seagull in the title. He liked the image of a seagull flapping its wings, except the session chairman, without telling Lorenz, changed the title to a butterfly, which I think was the right choice, a much more poetic image. It's a dramatic thought that something so delicate as a butterfly could change the weather by flapping its wings. So that, that choice created a sensation, at least in the world of butterflies. Take a look at this. Here are two butterflies. Uh, one is reading to the newspaper to the other, the obituary section in the Butterfly Times, and says, oh, he had a short but interesting life. For instance, did you know he was once responsible for a tornado in Texas? Well, we haven't pinned down which butterfly that is. But anyway, it's a fun image, whether it's completely convincing or not. It's up to you to decide. Now, in the past 20 years, the butterfly effect has intrigued authors and filmmakers. For example, if you uh, go rent a copy of Jurassic Park. We've all seen that movie. Many, many millions of people have seen this blockbuster by Steven Spielberg based on Michael Crichton's novel from 1990. But do you remember that chaos was such a prominent part of the story? It was. I certainly remember it because it showed what a chaos theorist looks like on screen. It was Jeff Goldblum, six foot four, dressed in black leather, looking like a rock star. Maybe not, well, <laughs> anyway, so there was Jeff Goldblum looking like Mr. Chaos, playing the character named Ian Malcolm. And in one scene, he decides he's going to try to seduce Laura Dern, his love interest in the movie. I think she's also a scientist, maybe a paleontologist, I forget. But anyway, he's going to demonstrate the butterfly effect on her hand, which reminds me too, wasn't there a mention of the Venus butterfly in that old show? Was it L.A. Law? Yeah, but that's something else. That's, that was strictly sexual. This was just the, the honest-to-God butterfly effect. Uh, and so he says to Laura Dern, let me have your hand. She puts out her hand and he's holding it. And then he surprises her by dropping a drop of water on it and asking her to predict which way will it roll off. So whether uh, that flirtation succeeded, well, you can watch the rest of the movie to see. But the unpredictability of that droplet's trajectory is a, a metaphor, uh, really a harbinger for what's about to happen at Jurassic Park. Let me remind you that uh, this is a story about a super carefully controlled theme park in which dinosaurs have been 
brought back to life from uh, cloning them from ancient DNA trapped in amber. And the, the engineers who have created the park and the paleontologists and the biotech people all say there's absolutely no danger here. Everything's under control. We have the best scientists working on this. And these, it's fail-safe. These dinosaurs cannot reproduce. They can't get out of their, their space. We're going to bring little kids from all over the world to see Jurassic Park. And, well, of course, chaos ensues, which is what the Jeff Goldblum character keeps warning everybody else, that in a system as complex as this, you can't control it. There are always unpredictable elements. And, and please, let's not be so... Uh, Let's not assume that we know what's really going on at Jurassic Park or that we have the kind of control we, we hope. Well, the butterfly effect also plays a central role in other productions that you may have seen. For example, there's Tom Stoppard's play, Arcadia, which I recommend to you. Uh, you may want to even read it if you can't see it anywhere because I think it has some of the best explanations of the basic ideas of chaos theory anywhere, better than scientific textbooks. Somehow that poet, that playwright, Stoppard is such a genius that he manages to explain the butterfly effect, strange attractors, iterated maps, things that we'll be learning about in the lectures to come better than, than any scientist or mathematician has so far, I think. So take a look at that if you're interested. Another one that you might want to take a look at is the movie Sliding Doors from 1998. This was a pretty small film, and I, in my experience, not many people have seen it, but uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is in that movie, and she plays a character who's, well, she's trying to catch a subway, and she goes to the train, and just before she gets through the doors, the doors slide closed, so she can't catch the train. That's in one version of her life. Then you see another version of her life where she gets to the train, and this time, as the doors are sliding closed, she gets in and, mate and catches the train. So what you see are two trajectories of a person's life depending on whether she does or doesn't catch the train before the sliding doors close. In one version, she's on the train, she makes it home, and sees her boyfriend in bed with another woman. That's one possible life. In the other version, she doesn't catch the train. The boyfriend is still in bed, but she doesn't know. And so you can see what will happen with a seemingly insignificant thing, like whether you catch the train or not, how the whole outcome of your life can be radically different. So this is an instance of the butterfly effect, a small change making a huge difference in a person's life. And I thought it was a pretty respectable movie. You could, you could see for yourself. Now, there's one movie I guess I would caution you <laughs> um, about, which is called The Butterfly Effect, 2004, with the young actor Ashton Kutcher. I don't know if you're likely to see that, but I probably the less said about that movie, the better. Okay, it does explore the concept of the butterfly effect, but I found it a bit grisly, and um, maybe that's enough. I don't want to put down the movie, and it may be to your taste, but I honestly, I wouldn't recommend it. And if you see that title and think, gee, this is something for me because I'm interested in chaos, maybe, maybe steer clear of that one. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. So these examples show how Hollywood and uh, playwrights like Tom Stoppard have incorporated the idea of the butterfly effect into drama, but you still, you could ask, wait a second, I mean, do I really need to be taking a course to learn about this? I, everybody knows that little things can make a big difference. That's, that's an ancient idea. There's nothing very surprising about that. And I have to agree with you. Yes, that's true. That is an ancient idea. And it certainly predates any work by Lorenz or anything that I'm saying here, or even Poincaré. I mean, this is an ancient concept. 
So Lorenz himself, in his own writings, mentions precursors to, that are literary precursors to the idea of the butterfly effect that were important in his own life. He mentions that he, uh, as a young man about to embark on his career as a meteorologist, was given a book as a present, a Christmas present, by his sister called Storm. It's a 1941 novel by George Stewart. And in Storm, the, there's a character who happens to be a meteorologist, which is why his sister thought of giving it to him. And the meteorologist at one point remembers a remark from one of his professors that a man sneezing in China can set off a blizzard in New York. That sounds like the butterfly effect, and it's even a meteorologist who's saying it. So Lorenz certainly would have had that in his idea, in his mind. But um, also, you know, this was part of the culture of meteorology. That is, this remark was not due to the writer of Storm. Apparently, meteorologists had been saying things like this for a long time, that the slightest change could affect the weather. So that was out there in the culture. It wasn't really due to Lorenz. A second interesting precursor that Lorenz mentions is a Ray Bradbury story, which I think a lot of people are aware of. It's a time travel story called A Sound of Thunder from 1952. And in that story, there's a a critical scene where a traveler goes back in time and accidentally steps on a prehistoric butterfly. And by stepping on this prehistoric butterfly and killing it, changes the outcome of a present-day presidential election. Well, now, this idea that these small effects can cascade and cause enormous problems later on, that is, as I say, a truly ancient idea, and it goes back at least as far as a, a famous piece of verse that you might be familiar with. Some attribute it to Ben Franklin, but some others uh, say that, this, that Ben took it from John Gower, who did publish in, in, sorry, in 1390 the famous verse, For Want of a Nail. So let me read that to you in case you're not familiar with it, or just to remind you how it goes. It's the story of the downfall of a kingdom. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost, and all for the want of a horseshoe nail. In other words, that there was one nail that wasn't available to put into the horse shoe, causing ultimately the loss of a battle that led to the downfall of a kingdom. So, so this old idea has, you know, there's really nothing so surprising in the idea that, that small changes can make a big difference through this cascading of effects. All right, so you might be wondering then at this point, what is new about the butterfly effect if it's been in all these novels and ancient poems and so on? Well, there is something new. What's new is the recognition that this same kind of sensitivity to tiny changes can afflict even the simplest systems that you would think would be immune from them. That's the point, that we knew the butterfly effect was there in complicated real-world situations. We didn't know that it could be there in things like this double pendulum or other simple mechanical systems. In a case of our own lives, it was always clear we couldn't predict the course of our, our fate or wars or things like that. There are just too many complexities millions of unaccounted variables. We don't know what laws they obey, or even if there are any laws at all. So that, that, as I say, is not surprising. But with simple deterministic systems like a double pendulum or Poincaré's three-body problem or Lorenz's artificial weather model, things like that, you would think, should not have the same kind of problem. 
because we know all the variables and we know the laws that determine their behavior. So where is there room for this kind of unpredictability? And yet it's there, and so we still can't predict what systems like this will do in the long run. That's the news. Poincaré himself certainly realized this. Okay, that is what he found in his work, as I say, I mentioned in an earlier lecture, in lecture four about the three-body problem, he, he showed that horrible nightmarish tangle that I said gave the implication of chaos, that, that systems, or sorry, two states of a system that were indistinguishably close could lead to different fates for the three-body problem. He saw that in his imagination, in this visualization of this high-dimensional state space, but he also wrote about it. At first, he wrote about it in this obscure way that I quoted in Lecture 4, but later he wrote in an absolutely pristine, compelling, lucid way, and I want to give you a quote from Poincaré. It's a little bit long, but it's so brilliant and so perfect that I, I want to read it all to you, and I'll point out it as I'm reading it wh exactly what he's saying. He's trying to address the question of how chance can emerge in a deterministic world. We know that there's chance. Where does it come from if we believe in Newton's laws? So this is what chance is, he says. A very small cause which escapes our notice determines a considerable effect that we cannot fail to see. And then we say the effect is due to chance. All right, so think about that. Something so small, getting on the train or not, don't even notice. It escapes our notice. It determines something very big that we cannot fail to see, like your boyfriend in bed with someone else or not. And then we say the effect is due to chance, whether you got on the train or not. But then he says, if we knew exactly the laws of nature and the situation of the universe at the initial moment, we could predict exactly the situation of that same universe at a succeeding moment. All right, if we knew exactly the laws of nature and the situation of the universe, you would need exact knowledge of two things to have perfect predictability and no chance. You would need to know exactly the laws and you would need to know exactly the situation of the universe, the initial state. If you did have that, there would be no chance. But then he says, but even if it were the case that the natural laws had no longer any secret for us, I like that, that is, even if we knew the natural laws, we had a God's eye view of the laws of nature, even if... The laws of nature had no longer any secret for us. We could still only know the initial situation approximately. Italics in his original. Approximately. You can never know the state of the universe perfectly. Only approximately. If that enabled us to predict the succeeding situation with the same approximation, that's all we require, and we would say that the phenomenon had been predicted. In other words, if whatever approximation we had to make initially didn't really grow we just had the same approximation in our answer, that would count as a genuine prediction. But he says, but it's not always so. It may happen that small differences in the initial conditions produce very great ones in the final phenomena. That's the problematic case, when a little change blows up to make a big change. A small error in the former will produce an enormous error in the latter. Prediction becomes impossible, and we have the fortuitous phenomenon. That's how chance arises, as a fortuitous phenomenon from small uncertainties cascading into enormous ones. That's from Poincaré, a book called Science and Method from 1914. All right, so that is a perfect description of the butterfly effect. He absolutely understood everything there was to understand about it back then. And he wrote it as clearly as he could write it. I think you'll agree. If you parse that paragraph, it's, you can't miss what he's saying. Still, everybody missed it. 
For nearly all other scientists, the recognition of this kind of unpredictability was very late in coming. Not in 1914, much later, and philosophically hard to swallow. It really was only around 1970 or 80 that chaos theory took hold. So this peculiar lapse of all these years, post-Lorenz it turns out, even Lorenz didn't convince them, led one of the most prominent scientists in the world, Sir James Lighthill, who held the same chair, the Lucasian Professorship of Mathematics, the same chair that Isaac Newton had held and that Stephen Hawking holds today. Sir James was the, the holder right before Hawking. So Sir James Lighthill issued a remarkable collective apology on behalf of all scientists, saying, we're sorry for misleading you about predictability for all these years. And so I want to read you a quote from him. This is amazing, a scientist apologizing on behalf of all of us to the public. Here's his collective apology, taken from an article called, I like this title, The Recently Recognized Failure of Predictability in Newtonian Dynamics. I want to comment on that later. It's not actually so recently recognized, because remember, Poincaré recognized it in 1914. But uh, here he is in 1986, apologizing for the recently recognized failure of predictability. He says, we're all deeply conscious today that the enthusiasm of our forebears for the marvelous achievements of Newtonian mechanics led them to make generalizations in this area of predictability, which, indeed, we may have generally tended to believe before 1960, but which we now recognize were false. All right, we thought everything was predictable from Newton's laws, but we now recognize that was not really true. We collectively wish to apologize for having misled the general educated public by spreading ideas about the determinism of systems satisfying Newton's laws of motion that, after 1960, were proved to be incorrect. Okay, we thought Newton's laws gave us total predictability, and by 1960, we knew that was wrong. And we were still lying to you for these intervening 26 years. Well, that was an important moment in the development of chaos theory because Lighthill was a great scientist, but not a chaos theorist. He, as they say today, he had not drunk the Kool-Aid. Okay, he was not a fringe guy who was going with this latest fad of chaos theory. He was totally rock solid, respectable, eminent, and his admission meant that chaos theory was for real and that everybody could join in now. This was not a passing fad. Though, as I say, he was late to the party. The greatest triumphs came in the first wave of chaos theory years earlier in the 70s and 80s. So he was on pretty safe ground saying that, you know, we could, we could now admit this mistake. It had already been decisively shown to be a mistake by the early 80s. Still, his comments made chaos theory a respectable and even legitimate topic of study for the late adopters. And there were a lot of them. So that's an interesting question then in the sociology of science. Why were scientists so slow to recognize the butterfly effect? I've talked about why they were so slow to recognize chaos in the previous lecture. I talked about the frame of mind that you need to see things that are right in front of you and how so many scientists, electrical engineers and mathematicians and physicists had trouble seeing what their own data were showing them. But there's another reason why the butterfly effect, that one aspect of chaos, this unpredictability that flows from tiny errors magnifying into enormous ones. Why was that so philosophically distasteful? I think because it was threatening to science itself. It really was. 
that is science as we conduct it depends on being able to draw a conceptual box around a system that you're studying, that you're interested in. With the, that is, when I, when I want to study the motion of this pendulum, I don't have to think about what's happening on Mars. I just analyze this pendulum, I've put the box around it, and I can neglect tiny effects coming from outside the system. People sometimes say everything affects everything else, but scientists hate that. No, it does not. I mean, yes, it does. Literally, it's true. There is a gravitational pull from every particle in the universe, but those are negligible. Come on, if we want to make progress and learn something, we can't believe everything affects everything else. It's a matter of degree. And some things have negligible effect, and we can ignore them. And so the butterfly effect was worrisome because it suggested that the things you thought were negligible might not be, that they could come back and change your system. Okay, and if that were true, then... If that were true for every system, science itself would be impossible. But more than that, I would say life would be impossible because everything would be up for grabs at every instant. So there seems to be something really repulsive about the butterfly effect. It has to be limited. And, and I think people sense that it was limited, but we're wondering exactly where is it limited. And so for the rest of the lecture, that's what we'll try to talk about, the limitations of the butterfly effect. Don't think it applies to everything at all times. That would be wrong. That's, the, that's a misunderstanding if you think that. It certainly does not occur in systems of the type that most scientists had been studying since Newton. It's not there in systems that just gently relax to some equilibrium state, like a particle rolling down to the bottom of a, a curved surface and just sitting there. There's no butterfly effect there. If I start two particles close to each other, they'll both just roll down and they won't get farther apart. Boring, but, but there's no butterfly effect at least. Or even in systems that have more life than that, that oscillate periodically, like, say, two metronomes. If I start two identical metronomes, and they're both tick-tock, tick-tock, and I get them in sync with each other so that you hear the clicks at the same time, and then I disturb one of them a little bit by flicking it with my finger, well, you'll hear tick-tick, 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 but they really, that error will not grow. It'll just stay like that for a very long time. And even if it does grow, it grows very slowly. Only linearly proportional to time is how we would say it mathematically. So it's a minor thing that's not serious. The point is the error does not snowball. There are lots of systems like this. The tides, for example. The tides are very predictable. Well into the future, months ahead, you can predict the tides. The return of Halley's Comet. We all know that you, I mean, that's how Halley got his name attached to it. You could predict Halley's Comet, whatever it is, 80-something years in advance, and it'll be there. The timing of eclipses, we can predict back into, I mean, as far as we like into the future, or we can go back to the time of the Greeks or before, we are absolutely dead sure we know when eclipses occur. All of those things are very, very periodic and hence very predictable. That is, they repeat, which helps make them predictable. Tiny disturbances in those cases don't mushroom into major forecasting errors. Now, Lorenz made an interesting comment about this once, having to do with the tides, that you can't always tell which systems are going to have the butterfly effect or not, because think about what's involved in understanding the tides. The tides involve a huge fluid mechanical system, the oceans of the Earth, enormous numbers of atoms and particles involved. In many ways, this problem is as complicated as the atmosphere. Really. I mean, they're both giant fluid mechanical systems. But the weather is unpredictable, and yet the tides are predictable. They're both big fluid mechanical systems governed by partial differential equations. How come we don't understand one or can't predict one, but we can predict the other? And Lorenz's point was because one of them is periodic and the other one is not. That's the thing. The tides repeat. 
The weather does not. It's, it's not determinism that's the important thing. It's determinism plus periodicity. The title of Lorenz's famous 1963 paper that I'll be discussing in the next lecture is Deterministic Non-Periodic Flow. It's the conjunction of those two things that is so essential, determinism plus non-periodicity. Remember, he wanted to make his weather non-periodic in the computer to test those models. It was by putting non-periodicity into determinism that he opened the door to chaos and the butterfly effect. Another example of this would be the uh, double pendulum toy that we've played with previously. Let me show you. What I've shown you already is that it has chaotic looking behavior. That is, it whirls around crazily. But I want you to, that is, it's not periodic. But that also means, because it's deterministic and non-periodic, it should have the butterfly effect, according to Lorenz. And so I can demonstrate that by trying to start these two identical pendulums, double pendulums, in a way that is, I'm going to make them as close to identical in their initial conditions as possible. That's why I've got this dowel here. I'm not going to cheat. I'll just, of course, there will be some tiny error. I can't do it perfectly. But what I'm going to do is quickly pull this dowel away. And then you should see two things happen. First, the two double pendulums will stay close together. They really will. They'll track each other. The, the unpredictability doesn't occur instantaneously. They'll be predictable in the short term and they'll stay together because of their deterministic character. But they will very rapidly become unpredictable and different. They'll diverge from each other after a certain amount of time. So let's try that. And maybe we'll be able to see this in slow motion. It'll be dramatic if, if uh, we can look at this later. Okay, ready? Look at that. They were together for a while. That came out. Yay. <laughs> a live demonstration that worked. Very good. Now, this can be dangerous. You recognize this is like Bruce Lee's nunchuck, so we don't want to start getting injured here with the double pendulum. Okay. So, they become unpredictable only after a certain amount of time, which we call the horizon of predictability. That's a great phrase that Lighthill introduced in his 1986 article. It's a beautiful article, very clear. I recommend it. So it's the time that it takes for these tiny errors to double in size. That's a, one a pro, a good definition of it. You're looking for the doubling of these errors. Once they start doubling, you're going to be in trouble. Well, for a, the question is then, how long does it take? What is the length of the predictability horizon? That's the important quantitative issue here. In our systems, uh, simulations of the Lorenz system, we had shown that the blue and the yellow curve stay together for a while. And here we go. So you've seen this before, but I want to make a little different point about it. Remember, I start the Lorenz system. I see a yellow curve. This is going to be periodic. At this point, it's got growing oscillations. Then it starts to do what really looks very non-periodic. There it is doing that. Okay, so it's not repeating. And then, as you remember, what I do is start midway through that, only changing in the fourth decimal place. And so now the blue curve is tracking the yellow one for a while, but now it's diverged. And so that is an example of the predictability horizon in action. Blue and yellow were predictable and identical up to about here, where my, my mouse is right now. Something like one time unit, or maybe two time units, or whatever. But certainly by three time units 
yellow and blue couldn't be more different. So for this case, the predictability horizon was something like two units of this abstract time. But in real systems, we can say, what are we talking about? What time do we really mean? Like in a chaotic electrical circuit, the predictability horizon can be measured. How long it takes for two chaotic circuits to decorrelate and become totally different. It takes about a thousandth of a second, a millisecond, fast. For this double pendulum, we could, if we watch in slow motion, see how long they stay together. And just eyeballing it, it looked like it was on the order of a few tenths of a second, maybe. I don't know, a second, something like that. For the weather, it's unknown, but it seems to be about a week or two that you can predict. And for the entire solar system, which turns out to also be chaotic, as simulations have shown, we don't know this experimentally, but simulations by many different groups keep coming out with numbers on timescales of a few million years, like about three, four, five million years, as determined by very careful long-term integrations of the solar system in mathematical modeling. That's a long time, five million years. So it's because the horizon is so long for the solar system that the motions of the planets seem utterly predictable to us today. They're within the predictability horizon. There's no contradiction here. The solar system is chaotic yet predictable because we're within the predictability horizon. And on the timescale of a human life or even the whole history of astronomy, they are predictable. Okay? But when we calculate planetary motions hundreds of years into the past, well, no problem. But if we go thousands, well, how about millions or billions of years, like at the beginning of the solar system, say four billion years ago, at the dawn of life on Earth, that would be meaningless you would have no way of knowing where the planets were at that point. So the bottom line is you can never predict much longer than the predictability horizon, no matter how good your instruments become. Students are often confused on this point and ask me, you keep talking about error. What if I don't make any error? What if my initial condition is exactly right? Well, you can't do that. You need infinite number of digits. Real numbers involve an infinite number of decimal places. So there's always some error somewhere, even if it's out in the 1,000th decimal place. What that means is, because these errors grow exponentially fast, that they will, even with a thousand digits of accuracy, the two trajectories will soon diverge. That is, the solution will end up being wrong. And the reason it happens so quickly is that the errors grow exponentially. If you try to make the initial condition more accurate, it's a losing proposition because, let me put it to you roughly like this. If I take ten times more initial accuracy, I get one more digit, that only buys me one more unit of prediction time. If I try to make my prediction time twice as long, I need to go to 100 times more initial accuracy, or three times as long, 1,000 times. You see, this is going to kill you. You need exponential accuracy just to get a linear increase in prediction time. And that's the problem, that the exponential growth of errors in a chaotic system overwhelms even the most meticulous observations or care. So... It's time to end this lecture, and, and let me, it's actually time to end a part of the course. That is, so far in the course, we've emphasized the unpredictable and disorderly side of chaos. But there's something thrilling coming next, which is that chaos also has secret order. There's an orderly side to chaos, and the patterns in it will amaze you. See you next time.